Good evening, church family. Yeah, I'll take it. Hello. <laughs> Enthusiastic. Thank you, whoever said that over there. Um, hey, it is really good to be together. Uh, it's great to gather, to sing, to praise God's holy name, to, to look at his word together now. Um, now, I can't remember when. A few weeks ago, we had a bit of an update about how church uh, budget, church family budget was going. Uh, and the news was we we're about $170,000 behind budget. Uh, but in response to that news going out across all of our church services here at EV, uh, wonderfully, uh, really good news, uh, there's been a $100,000 shift in that. So we're now $65,000 behind budget, which is really, really good news. Uh, so praise God. You could clap that if you want, but praise God for the generosity of his people. That's wonderful. Um, so yeah, lots to give thanks for there. Really good news um, as a little side note. But let me pray and we'll, um, we'll get into the word together. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for your generosity to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your provision for us. Thank you for the news of your gracious gracious provision uh, with our church finances as well. Um, But thank you that you have also provided for us so richly in the word that is in front of us tonight. So we pray that tonight might be a feast as we look at the things that you have for us here in your word. I pray that you would teach us, instruct us, grow us, challenge us, cause us to love you more, appreciate you and your good works all the more uh, for your glory and for our joy. Amen. All right, well, here we go, Genesis 1. Now, awkward family members, they're just fantastic, aren't they? An awkward family member. Maybe you might, when you're little, your mum or your dad, this could have been you. You know, you've got your friends around and then dad's there making all the dad jokes, just making you feel awkward. Mum's there saying mum things. Maybe when you're little, it was that your little brother or sister who was doing what little brothers and sisters do. If that's you, you know who you are, you know what you do. Uh, but we all know that feeling, that sense of embarrassment in front of our family. But the problem with awkward family members is... Well, even if they do make us feel silly, you can't abandon them, can you? You can't just bail on them and be like, I'm not with them, because they're family. You love them, you stick with them, you defend them, you stick up for them, you own them as your family. Now, I think for some Christians, the early chapters of Genesis, they can feel a little bit like an awkward family member for some of us. Genesis is our Bible. We know that it's God's Word. We know that it's true. We know, if you're a Christian, that you can trust it. Yet sometimes it it gets a bit weird, doesn't it? It feels a bit strange. It says some really odd things in these chapters. Uh, Talking snakes, God physically walking in the garden in some fashion, forbidden fruit that you shouldn't eat. Our chapter tonight talks about a world that was created in six days. There's no mention of things like evolution and a big bang and all those kind of things. And so then our world comes along and it preaches to us this message. It it says things like, science has disproved God, is what the world says. For some people, in that kind of a context, Genesis can start to feel a little bit awkward. And many of us will have different reactions to that, won't we? Some of us will go, well, I don't really know how, but I don't want to really think about it. The Bible is true, la, la, la. And we stick our fingers in our ears and pretend that none of these things have been said out there in the world, ignore it. Others become amateur scientists and arguers and we want to take on the world and all this kind of stuff. Well, my plan for us tonight as we hit this passage here tonight is pretty different to all of that. My hope is tonight that we'll be able to 
rehabilitate the way that we think about Genesis. Not by becoming experts at science or something like that, but by becoming better readers of God's Word. Looking close at the passage here in Genesis 1 and really getting our heads around what is this part of the Bible actually teaching us. That's where we're headed and I hope as we do that it'll help us pass those questions about science and the Bible and so on. Uh, But it'll give us some real answers to those questions as well. But much more than that, what I hope will happen is that we'll actually see what Genesis is teaching us, what it is actually talking about. Because I want to suggest it's not a science manual on how the world was created, how it was made. It's not even asking that sort of a question. It's actually about much, something much bigger and better and more wonderful than all that. Because in these pages, as we open Genesis tonight and throughout the term, we're going to meet our Maker. And in doing so, we're going to get an insight actually into the very purpose of our existence, why you are on this planet, which is much more important than questions about how it came to be, why you are here, who did that, why did he put you here, for what reason? And so as we dig in tonight, there are riches that we're going to encounter as we wrestle with Genesis 1. Why are you on the planet? Why did God make you? Seeing God clearly, meeting our Maker, He's going to do wonderful things for us. And so let's dig in, let's have a look at it together. And the first thing you've got to recognise is you open Genesis 1 right there in front of you, I encourage you to open your Bibles if you've got them and follow along. Here's the first thing to see right at the start, God created everything from nothing. He created everything from nothing. Have a look there, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's easy to miss this because we're so familiar with that little verse there, but before anything else was, we're told, in the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. Now, when it says heavens, that just means everything according to the way they viewed the world that's up there and earth, everything here, which means everything. That's that's a way of saying everything that exists, God made it. And notice there's no mention of someone first creating God. God is the one who was always there. He never had a moment where he came into existence, he always was, and the one who always was made everything. That's where it starts. And so notice as well, it's not as if there was all these things kind of floating around in space or something like that, and then God took the things that already existed and pieced it together like a master Lego builder and made what is. No, no, God made it from nothing. Now, that gets a bit confusing when you have a look at verse 2. Have a look there. It says, Now darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, So it sounds a little bit like in verse 2, some people would argue that it's talking about that there was stuff that was pre-existent and God grabbed those things and made the world out of the things that already existed. But the bigger picture in the Bible is really, really clear. Actually, what's happening in creation is God made everything from nothing. And I think the things talked about there in verse 2 is actually imagery describing chaos, The deep, the waters, is a picture of chaos, not a picture of things that God took and then made our world from. Ultimately, God made everything from nothing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 makes this clear. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. 
God didn't take pre-existent things and make the world. God is the only thing that has no beginning. And starting from that point, everything else was made. God made it from nothing. Which fundamentally puts God in a category all on His own. (laughs) You know, we like to break up things into different categories in our world, animal, mineral, vegetable or whatever people are up to these days. But the most profound divide, categorization in our world is this. You have the Creator and He's in a whole category on His own and then there's just everything else. That's how you break up our world. That's the biggest divide that exists in our world. And so what that means is, in one now this needs to be qualified, but in one sense, you have more in common with an orange over here in this category than you do with the Creator. He gets a whole category on His own, the one who was never created. He exists eternally. And His works, all creation, all sit over here. And what that means as well is God, in His works in creation, He far outstrips anything else that humans could ever do with His creation. Now, as humans, we're we're pretty special. We make pretty amazing things. We build pretty great stuff. Check out this up on the screen here. This building here is the tallest building in the world. I'm going to say it wrong, but I think it's called the Berg Khalifa. It's in Dubai. It's the tallest building in the world, 829 metres tall, Uh, 142,000 square metres of glass in this thing. It looks like sci-fi, doesn't it? That's a real picture of a real building, by the way. And the other little skyscrapers towered by it. Um, This thing houses 35,000 people. That's like Erin Terrigal of Oakle, Wombrel, all housed in this building here. It is amazing. It's incredible. Humans did that. Wow! (laughs) But when you boil it down, all we've actually done is assemble stuff that God made. God's the one that made the sand that you melt down and turn into glass, if that's how you make glass these days, I don't know. God's the one who who put the metal in the earth and formed it and, and we took it and shaped it and placed it together. But our most amazing works, the most incredible feats of creation that humans could accomplish, that's just playing Lego with the stuff that God created from nothing. He's the one who wills atoms into existence. He speaks and it happens. So how do you respond to such a God? Stand in awe. Meet your maker. He is so far above us, eternal, all-powerful, everlasting, creator God. Just, just pause for a second, take a moment to, to think about the detail of the beauty in this world. Think about your eye or, or your hand in front of you and the intricacy of the human body and the way the trees and plants out there, they just do their thing at the microscopic level, the incredible detail. And then think about that complexity multiplied out through a universe that is so vast, we don't even have words to describe it far bigger than the human mind can comprehend. Everything down to the microscopic and the enormous God made from nothing. And so He's the one who ought to be thanked and worshipped and adored and obeyed. He's amazing. But here's here's a little thought for us, Here's, here's the question. What if the God who did all of that, who made all of this creation as we see it today... 
what if he actually wasn't very nice? Just um, fly a thought kite with me, because we're so used to the idea of God who is revealed in the Bible, but what if the God who did all of this didn't actually care about you, his creature? We take it for granted that he, do, he, that he does, but what, what if other cultures all throughout history have had very different views to the Judeo-Christian view here in the Bible? What if God were just some accident or slaves for his amusement, made for his entertainment on a whim? Well, here's the second thing that we must see here in this passage. God's creation is good and orderly because he is like that. He is good and he's orderly. Now, you might read this account of God creating the world, and as we do, I imagine many of us have got a particular argument in the back of our minds. We have a particular fight with the world when it comes to these questions about creation. You you guys tell me, what's the big fight that Christians have with the world about this topic of creation? What is it? What's the fight that we come to this question with? Someone yell it out. Yes, so one, so one question that people might bring is, well, is there a God at all? That's one fight that we come to with this question, yep. And standing behind the idea of there being no God is the thought that, well, all of this is just a big accident. Now, our world says that this creation out there that you see, it's just an accident. The Big Bang and evolution, all that without the help of God, that's how it all got there. And so Christians come along and we're left going, well, let's have a a fight about that question. What we need to realise as we come to Genesis tonight is that's not the context that Genesis was written into. That's not the fight that this passage was written to combat and engage with. This passage was not written to write off a Big Bang or evolution or something like that. It's not even conscious of the concept of that fight at all. It's not concerned with that question. It's just not on the radar. It's not about that. So we need to be careful as we come to Genesis ourselves not to force it to answer questions about that kind of stuff when it's just not the context that it was written into. Instead, let's just be clear, Genesis was actually written into a context where there was a whole other fight to be had with the cultures around them. It was written into a world where the other nations around this people, Israel, believed that the creation itself was God. The sun, the moon, the stars, they were gods, was was some of the thoughts. It it was written to a context where people believe that the creation, as you see it, as it exists, was an accident, the the leftover carnage of some body parts from some gods who had a fight over an affair and and then the blood and the body of the the gods was spilled out and that is the creation as, as we see it. That's the context into which Genesis 1 is written, arguing for something different. And so, in that context, with that lens on, what is Genesis 1 telling us about God? What's it actually trying to teach us? Let's have a look at the details together and think a bit more about this. Look at this slide up on the screen as well. Keep your Bibles open if you have them there. Uh, This slide's a helpful overview that we can have in the background. But let's, for example, think about day one. Pick it up in day one with me. God starts by creating a space for the things that go in the sky is the best way you could say it. Have a look at verse 3, day 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness, as if He's creating the concept of light and darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. 
So day one there, it's almost as if conceptually, according to their cosmology, he's creating a space for the things that go in the sky to be there. He's making a space for the sky things to be put in place. Then on day two, as you read on, he creates a space for the water creatures and and the birds as well. Day three, he creates a space for the land creatures and particularly he slows down in day three because this is the space where he's going to put humans on day six. Days one to three, what he's doing is God is creating these spaces for things to be put. Now what happens in day four? We've just read day one. Have a look at day four, verse 14. And then God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. So notice how he seems to be focusing on um, the purpose of the things he's creating here. And let let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, as you read on day five, he fills the space that he made for the sea creatures and the, and the, uh, the, uh, and so on, with, with sea creatures and, and birds. Day six, he fills the space that he made on the land, first with animals, and then again he stops and speaks and brings humans, particularly day six. Now, you might have all sorts of questions about what we've looked at so far and as you've read the details there, but do you see the big point that's emerging in this passage? It's some really obvious things that you're meant to get. Again and again, God saw that it was good. Creation is categorically good. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a leftover scraps of some dead God's body because they had a fight. And one's, He's carefully and intentionally crafted and formed the world just the way He planned. Each thing according to its kind, again and again, and it says, that's the point. That's the big point going on here in Genesis. Now, as an aside, I want to suggest that this day's structure, days one to six here, I think is more of a feature of poetic writing, structuring technique, rather than a scientific description of how the order of things were made. So I want to carefully suggest that the Bible isn't actually trying to insist, though it could be talking about this, but I'm not, I don't think it's trying to insist that God definitely did create the world in six literal 24-hour periods, as we call a day, as humans, as positioned on earth, as we spin around to face the sun. I don't, I don't think that's really what's on view here at all. Now, let me give you a couple of reasons why that might be the case, and it's fine if you disagree with me about that, but here's a few thoughts to think about. Um, First of all, notice the order of creation in chapter 1 here seems to be different to the order of creation in chapter 2. Now, if you haven't read Genesis 2 lately, you can go and chase that up. But in chapter 1, it says that plants are made first, then animals, then last men, and women are made together. But if you read chapter chapter 2, it seems like, verses 5 to 7, it's as if the man was there before the plants grew up, it says. Uh, Verse 18, it says also that the man was alone when he was created and so in response to that God then makes the woman 
So unless he was alone for a hot 45 minutes and then God was like, we better solve this within a 24-hour day, it it's just seems a bit odd. Back in chapter 1, he makes them on the same day though and the order seems, there's some differences perhaps. Now, what's going on there? If the order is different, if I'm right in what I'm reading there, what's going on? Is the writer who's written Genesis just a big idiot? You know, he writes one thing on, in chapter 1 and then he forgot what he wrote in chapter 1 and then contradicts himself in chapter 2 as if he doesn't know what's going on. Well, no, I want to suggest that the writer isn't necessarily trying to communicate anything about the specific order in which creation was even made. So, I want to suggest that both of these chapters side by side, if they contradict each other, can't both be talking about the the order in which creation was made. It's even possible that neither account's trying to do that kind of thing, is another option. Secondly, notice that Genesis 1 is full of all sorts of Poetic writing techniques. I don't think it's a piece of poetry in a typical sense. But what you guys tell me, if you've done poetry at school or even university, what's some classic features of poetic writing? You guys tell me. What's some things? Repetition. Yeah, there's a lot of repetition. And God said, and God said, let there be, let there be. There was good, it was good, he saw it was good. Lots of repetition right through the thing. What's some other features of poetic writing? Symbolism, yep. So you could argue some of the things going on is symbolism, perhaps, yep. Rhyme is another one. Now, you, it's, this is hidden in our English translations, but there's rhyme going on here. So verse 2 there says that the earth was formless and empty. Tohu and bohu is the original language. So there's rhyme, there's repetition, there's perhaps symbolism. It seems like there's some poetic language features here. Thirdly, notice that, this is another point, but on, go, on day one... It says that God creates light and darkness, but then it says on day four, God creates the sun and the moon, which typically is the, the things that give light to the world. And so, now, could God have made light some other way? Yes, absolutely. In, in fact, Revelation talks about the fact in, in heaven there'll be no need for a sun or a moon because God himself will be the light of, of the world and so on, which is perhaps some symbolism as well. But it does just start to get a bit weird to think about the idea that he creates light, yet the light source doesn't come until day four, perhaps. Fourthly, what does a day even mean when God hasn't created the sun yet? So if God creates the sun on day four, what were those first three days conceptually about in terms of periods of time? Does that make sense? How, how do we measure a day? Well, it's because our planet that we're sitting on at a particular point spins and faces the sun and 24 hours, that's, that's our day, right? And in fact, a day in Australia happens a different time to a day in China because the, we're at different points on the globe as it spins. Is Genesis trying to teach us that God kind of physically located himself at a point on the planet and was like, I'll base it off this particular garden that we're hanging out in here and according to this garden, as it spins, that's the day. Although there's no sun to spin and face yet, so I'll pretend there's a sun and when it rotates, I'm like, yep, that's when the sun's there, that's going to represent a day, so days one. You see how it just gets a bit strange to kind of take our experience of what a 24-hour day is and apply it to the God who just... <laughs> towers above the bounds of earth and time and uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 says, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is, is like a day. Uh, God's view of a human day is, 
He's, he's not constrained in the same way. Now, there's just a couple of reasons why I don't think Genesis 1, or perhaps even Genesis 2, is meant to be read as like a scientific account of the order and the detail of how our world was made. But hear me really clearly on this. Instead, it is a true, 100% true, true in every sense of the word, account using poetic language and imagery and so on, teaching us true things about who God is and why He's made this world. I'm just not convinced it's teaching us anything about how the world was made in the scientific sense, as if you got out a video camera and watched it happen. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible is not true. Genesis is 100% true, the very Word of God, 100% truth, I'm just asking us to wrestle together with the question of what is the truth that this part of the Bible is actually trying to teach us? What was the author's intent when he wrote it? What was he trying to teach us? It's also important to catch this, so get this, here's what isn't going on here. It's not as if Christians forever have always understood Genesis 1 to be talking about six literal 24-hour human days of creation then 80 years ago, this Big Bang theory becomes popular, and then we all need to change our interpretation of Genesis to accommodate science, because we learnt new things, so we're like, well, we better change how we read the Bible from now on to make it fit. No, no, that's not what's happening. From the very beginning, Christians have puzzled over Genesis 1, and there's been all sorts of interpretations of how to read it from the very beginning. In fact, it wasn't until the 1600s that a particular Christian teacher, Archbishop Usher, made this six-day, 24-hour view a popular view. It wasn't necessarily the dominant view before then. Now, I won't go into the details, but there's a slide here, take a picture of it, you can chase it down later on if you want. Uh, But Philo, he was almost a contemporary of Jesus, so before the New Testament, um, believed that creation was instantaneous, uh, that the six days, something else was going on there. Justin Martyr very early thought that the six days represented long periods of time, but not six 24-hour periods. Uh, Clement of Alexander thought creation was done all at once in an instant, and so was struggling. Origen, very famous theologian, he was kind of the big dog of his time. He understood Genesis 1 allegorically, which meant he thought it was imagery and so on. Augustine didn't think they were literal days, rather the world was created in an instant and writing techniques were doing something. Now, the point isn't that one of these guys is right, in fact, they can't all be right because they're saying different things to each other. I'm just pointing out that the text itself has always had a whole bunch of different interpretations of what's going on. Now, personally, for me, the closer I read Genesis 1, the more time I spend in this passage and think deeper about it, the more I'm inclined to think it isn't trying to tell me that the world was definitely made in six 24-hour periods. Now, God certainly could have done that. I'm just not convinced that's what Genesis 1 is trying to tell me he did. I just don't think it's the point of the passage. Let me give you one more illustration which might help and then I think we'll be very close to question time. So, let me give you one illustration here. Imagine a builder was going to describe to you uh, him building a hospital... So, building a hospital from the perspective of a builder, well, he'd probably do it in terms of construction, right? So, the builder, the project manager, would say, well, first thing we did was we dug the earthworks and and laid the groundwork, then we poured the concrete and made the foundation. The next step, I don't know how to build a hospital, right? But the next step, I presume, is we brought in the walls and set up the big concrete walls, 
and then put gyprock on it. Probably. I don't know what that is, but you know. And then we brought in the electrician, and then, and then someone got a crane and plopped a roof on. I'm sure that's not how you build a hospital. But he would describe it sequentially as you built a thing. That's how a building project manager would describe building a hospital. Now imagine a surgeon or a hired person in a hospital who works in a hospital on a board working on this project of putting together a hospital, how would he describe how he designed a hospital? Imagine he's giving you a tour as a surgeon who works in the hospital, who's using it for its functional purpose. How would he describe building a hospital? He probably wouldn't say all that stuff. Instead, he'd say, well, the first thing we did is we put the operating theatres on level two, because that's the main place that I work in, the operating theatres, which is very good. But we also we put reception and the triage section on level one down the bottom, because that's where we want patients to walk in. Now, also, you should know, I park my car on the gr- underneath in the underground car park, which was probably built earlier than those other things. Um, but that's where I park my car, blah, blah, blah. And we also put this state-of-the-art helipad on the roof which is great and helicopters can fly in and out there and also I ate lunch on this wing over here which is near the teaching hospital which we also do you see how a, a surgeon who was functionally using the hospital would use a different kind of language to describe how he built the hospital if he designed it now the surgeon isn't lying and he's not contradicting the builder they're just doing two different things as they describe their building of a hospital Now, I think as we come to Genesis 1, sometimes we can be doing two things. Number one, we can assume a sort of construction language of the writer as if he's linearly describing the process of building the world. And additionally, we can kind of miss some of the signs in the passage, perhaps, which point to the fact that it seems to be much more about the why of creation and the function of the creation and who of creation rather than the details of the scientific description of how you put together a universe. So here's what all that means. You guys might hear people say things like, science has disproved God, or you have to choose between science or God, which one you're going to pick. Now, sometimes the Bible, the things the Bible teaches, clashes with the worldview of those that many people adopt because of science. So, for example, many people, because of the things they hear from the space of science, will say, therefore, there is no God, this world is just the result of a big accident and genetic mutation. Now, I don't think you have to choose between the Bible and science, but sometimes you do need to choose between the worldview that people who are influenced by science adopt and the worldview that the Bible describes. But you don't have to choose between the Bible and science. It's just that people are taking some things that are said in the space of science and then touting a particular worldview because of that and the Bible directly critiques that, but it isn't at war with the field of science. In fact, quite the opposite, the fact that there is a good God who is ordered and careful and built this world with laws of nature the way He is, is the very foundation of the whole field of science. The laws of nature that God has put the world together the way He has in a predictable pattern is the very foundation of this thing we call science. It was on that basis that Christian men and women developed this field of science in the first place. The Bible's not at war with science. Don't be embarrassed of Genesis 1 like it's some awkward family member you need to defend. Now, A quick note for those of us um, who have all sorts of... uh, I know that here at EV Night, there'll be a whole bunch of different resting interpretations of Genesis 1. 
as we exist together as a Christian family. Maybe for you or perhaps for your family, you do believe that this is describing six 24-hour human days and if that's the case, good, power to you, that's good. There's some good reasons in the text why you might think that. Uh, it does say that there was morning and there was evening, the first day. Of the se- so that sounds a bit like the way you would describe a day. It uses narrative language, it's not just a piece of poetry, it is describing a linear narrative, so I get that as well. Um, if that's where you land, good. I, I think as Christians, this is something we can disagree on. As long as our goal together remains... What is this passage actually teaching? Not, I'm from this tribe, I'm from that tribe, or whatever. What is God trying to teach me about Himself from His good Word? There's the question. But let's not miss the main point. God is good, His creation is intentional and ordered, and repeatedly we're told it was good, it was good, it was good. This has a lot of implications for the God who made it and us. Now, we're going to get to that in a minute, but I'm going to invite Tamara up now, uh, We've got a bit more to see still in this passage, by the way. So we're going to do some question time now and then we're going to finish up together in the passage. Have we got any questions? Yeah, lots of questions have come in. Um, And I will say Jen has a mic as well and so you can take questions from the congregation as we go too. So I might start with um, one that's come, come in through the text line already. But at any point, pop up your hand and she can bring the mic to you. Um, so one of the, the first questions that has come through a couple of times um, is as you think about the possibility that this might not be a literal 24 hours, literal description, um, it, it can sound concerningly like you're diminishing God's word. Totally. Um, yeah, and I guess raises the question of where do you stop? So how mm. does that then um, change the whole way we read every other part of the Bible and what can we trust anymore? Mm. Yeah, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, Well, look, one thing I'd say is I love that that is the concern of the person who's asking this really good question. Um, And in some senses that is uh, not specifically about Genesis, but I share that concern for how we read the Bible. So I've met Christian brothers and sisters who have discovered new things as they've read Genesis and and so on and gone, yeah, this is interesting. Maybe it isn't as literally as I thought it was. And then I've seen some people in that space kind of slide off down a weird hill where they then start applying that grid to other passages, which I think are just so clearly not symbolism, but uh, literally describing history and end up in a funny place. So, So it is a danger and it's something that we should be concerned about. I think the thing that keeps us honest is what's called your your hermeneutic of how you read the Bible. How do you interpret the Bible, your hermeneutic? Um, How do you read it? Um, So the starting point is authorial intent. What does the author mean to communicate when they wrote this down? If that's the big question in your head, not, oh, what might a big bang or whatever, um, uh, I've forgotten. Evolution. Evolution. I forgot about the word evolution, you know, what might the, these things in science say about the Bible, let that be my grid by which I interpret the Bible, chuck that out, what's the Bible saying? What was the author trying to communicate when they wrote it down? That's the question and in doing so it kind of keeps us honest to then work out what kind of literature we're reading. So I take it that almost 100% of us would agree there are different types of literature in the Bible and it's important to be aware of that. 
So if you went over to Song of Songs and heard a description of a woman that said her hair is like goats running down, not even, it may not even say like goats, her hair is goats running down Bashan, Lake Mount Bashan, what, you know, um, her eyes are pools of blah, 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 her nose is a toothpick in a door, I don't know, like, it, <laughs> you read things that are clearly imagery in the Bible and it's poetic and you go, clearly there's not this goat lady with goats all over her head and giant water eyes, um, so there's different types of literature in the Bible, it's just the case. And there's historical narratives in the Bible as well. So you just, you're trying to work out what kind of piece of literature are we reading together. So that's, that's the key, that keeps us honest. Yeah, and I feel like you've given us some reasons why you're leaning towards this part being that's right. poetic. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. if you're convinced this is purely historical narrative without poetic writing techniques, or then it would make sense to say that it must be... 6 24-hour days. But there's just some confusing things internal to the text, Genesis 1 and 2, that will push you a bit, I suspect. Anyway, yeah, yeah. there's one question. We, we should yeah, keep moving. Um, so something that came up as well, sorry, I'll throw out here in a second, but um, around authorial intent was yes. um, God is the author of the Bible. Yes. And so couldn't God have looked down history and seen the question of evolution coming and so had this chapter of the Bible written with evolution in mind. Sure. Uh, to combat evolution as a... Yeah, yeah sure. Um, well, as, as I talk about authorial intent, intent, the thing to know about the Bible in front of you is that it is always written by two authors, That is, there is God, the author who superintends the whole thing from beginning to end and put the Bible together as it is. There is God who is over all of it, but the mechanism by which we get this thing is he works through human authors to put it down on paper. And so there's always a human behind every book that's scribed it down and so on, oral tradition sometimes before then been written down. So there's always a human author and there's God, the author over the top. But what I want to suggest to you, hermeneutic is, is that God is never doing things through the Bible um, contradicting the human authors, in a sense. Well, you might come close in some ways, but um, what the human authors write down, their intent of what they're communicating is the intended communication of God. And so I just think that means you need to take into account things like what context was it written in, etc. Could God have... I think Genesis has things to say about, to a degree, things to say about science, but it wasn't written into a context by the human authors trying to combat science. They weren't worried about a Big Bang. They were worried about whether this creation is the dead body parts of a god that had a war. Yeah, I think that's the battle they were fighting and writing, arguing against. And do we have any evidence about who wrote Genesis? Was another question. Yeah, great question. Um... It's not internally given as, there's no internal author, it doesn't say, you know, in the beginning God, oh, by the way, this is written by Phil, so it's not, there's no person's name in there, Um, but traditionally, I'm just trying to remember, there might be some places in the New Testament that say this, but certainly Jewish traditions, and maybe Hazy or someone can correct me, it's generally thought that the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses, the, the Pentateuch, the first, first five, including Genesis. And so we go with historical tradition there. And there might be some things in the New Testament that suggest that Moses wrote the first five books. I can't quite remember. He's hazy in the room. Yeah, but John 5, 
There you go. Which means Genesis 1 is describing things that Moses certainly wasn't an eyewitness of, for example. But yeah. yeah. And I should say, any of these questions, if there's more complexity, there will be more complexity or more mm. you want to dig into, um, there is an event in a couple of weeks' time yeah. where we're hoping to have more chance to do this. And do we have a date for that event yet? Hazy or someone else? Monday, Monday the 7th of August. Monday 7th of August. We'll get together and have yeah. a discussion around these kind of things. Herdy will be here. You can bully him. It'll be great. Um, um, was there someone out there who had a question? Does someone have the mic at the moment? We don't have the mic out yet. Oh, great. I'll keep on going with my listen. I reckon we can do one or two, and then if yours doesn't get hit, come talk to me later on, I reckon, because we've got a little bit more to actually apply this part of the Bible together. Nice. So a couple of questions we're asking, and you might have talked about this as you went further after these were sent in. Mm -hmm. But so then where are you saying things like evolution and the Big Bang fit in? Yeah, well, a short answer is um, uh, at a most basic level, I think the, the the most simplistic answer is I guess I'm trying to say I don't think Genesis 1 is saying anything about those things, for or against. I just don't think it's directly touching on it in any sense. The author didn't write it going, I better sort out this Big Bang evolution question. So I just, I just don't think it's about that at all. A secondary question then becomes, well, is it possible to take the idea of a Big Bang or evolution and, um, what's the word I'm after here, um, integrate it into the things that Genesis obviously does say? And I think the short answer is, I think, it's a relatively simple idea to, in, to integrate a Big Bang into this, I think, um, because it's, it's just, it's describing things that happened before humans are even around in this, like, yeah. So, so I think it's easy to integrate the idea of a Big Bang into what Genesis says. I think evolution is, uh, there's certainly Christians that I know and love and respect who would say they believe in what's called theistic evolution, which is the idea that not that this world was just created as a big accident or even that God kind of wound it up and started an evolutionary process and then was like, well, off you go, evolution, but rather that God superintended, sovereignly ordained over this whole process, including evolution, to bring about life and humanity as we know it in a God-ordained, cared-for way, even perhaps with supernatural intervention at points in the evolutionary process. So there's Christians who believe in evolution in the Bible. Um, but I think that's a trickier thing to integrate together. The big things a person who believes in, uh, I don't mean like microevolution within a species, but that we have developed through evolution. To believe that and put it together with the Bible, you need to deal with questions like death before the fall. Was there animal death? There certainly was plant death with seeds and stuff, but death, uh, was Adam a real historical figure? I think Jesus... And the New Testament, Paul says he was. So you've got to answer those kind of questions if you're going to integrate evolution. But I don't think they are definitely mutually exclusive. I don't have a strong opinion on it myself, though. But yeah. Yeah, great. Jen, has someone got the mic at the moment? I've still got it. 
Great. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, leave you with one last question. Yep. Um, and there were a lot of good ones that I can mm. see here that we haven't got to. And so okay. please do come to the night um, or chase Jono up yep. after. Um, come find myself, Tamara, Hazy, someone else who looks trustworthy here tonight, uh, and come to the night. Yeah. Like, have great chats about this over dinner. It would be a good thing to do as well. Yeah. So, so um, final question is kind of building off one of your points. So I think you um, said that creation's good and ordered mm. reflects God who is good and ordered. Yeah. Um, and, but one of the big arguments against God is that he isn't good, mm. that he lets so much bad happen yeah. to even his followers. And yeah. so as we're talking about God being good, how do we fit that in with all the bad things that sure. happen to his people? Look, that is a magnificent question. Um, I think that's a question that deserves a whole sermon on its own. Um, now, there's a sermon up on our website um, that I did in 2019 on suffering and the sovereignty of God. So chase up a whole sermon on it and listen to 40 minutes on that would be a good thing to do. Uh, but I think some of the things I'll say will touch on the edge of that question. Beyond that, I'm so sorry, we just don't have time to properly answer everything there is to say about that, other than to say, well, I'll say what I'm going to say in the rest of our sermon. So let's look at, let's apply this passage together. Uh, what is the riches that are actually contained in this passage? What's all the good things that it does teach us? First of all, let me double down on this, as it's been said, the goodness of creation. Remember that, it says it again again, God saw that it was good, God saw that it was good. Now, we are going to see very quickly, chapter 3, the fall is going to come into the picture and creation is going to be marked, stained, marred, disfigured, that's going to happen. But as that happens, it doesn't completely reverse the goodness of God's creation in every sense. It doesn't undo creation and make it no longer good in any way. And so what that means is even though there's a fall, today we still do get to enjoy the amazing handiwork of God. And it's truly good. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky proclaim the work of his hands. It pours forth speech. So friends, what that means is every bushwalk, every golf adventure you go on, every, every surf, every sunset, every hug from a friend, every bite of mango, every bite of steak is a chance to stop and notice the goodness of God's creation and to praise him for it. That's why it's there, to bring him glory. Now, a few years ago, there was a share house that lived next door to me uh, with um, Steph, Hayes and Sophia from Canada and a few other people live in this house. And I remember one night sitting in my lounge room at some of the windows are open and I just hear this Canadian voice go, oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, Sophia, but it was great. And I was like, what's going on? And we went out on our deck and there's this incredible sunset and our neighbours are all on their deck watching the sunset, just going, oh my goodness. And we're like, that is a good sunset. We went back inside and then a little while later, like five minutes later, the sunset finished and we just hear like this rambunctious applause and hoots and cheering as they praise God for the glory of his good creation. That's a right response to the goodness of this creation. And so do that. Second, from the very beginning, notice that God relates to his world by his mighty word. God is a speaking God. It's the means by which he creates. It's the means by which he continues today to reveal himself to us, this precious word from God. The same powerful word that flung stars into space is the word that we sit under as we listen to the voice of God today. 
from beginning to end. That's how God relates to his creation. Third, God made this world and so he has the right to tell us how to use it. There's nothing that exists that a human can claim is ultimately theirs, independent of the Creator. The reality of creation means that God made it and so He rightly decides how it should be used. He rules it because He made it. Now, you might hear that and you might go, ah, I guess that's kind of technically true. It does mean God can tell me how to use His world, I guess, but doesn't mean I need to like the things that He says because I'd much rather be in charge myself. You might feel some of that perhaps, but here's the thing, there's something much more wonderful going on than just owner's rights. He made it so he can use it any way he wants, even if he's a big meanie. No, it's not that. He does have the right to rule because he made it, but he is actually good and his creation is good and his plans for his creation, his intentions are good. Just look at the chapter again. Notice the care, the order, the beautiful diversity of this creation. God lovingly comes to us at the end as his image bearers And he says, here is the good way, the right way to use my creation. His commands are only ever good news. Wisdom from the God who knows what's best. So drink deeply of that reality, even if God's commands can start to feel like they're clashing with your own preferences or worldview. There's there's a very small thing aside. This wasn't a contentious thing to say a few years ago, but we're living a time where the world is preaching to us that Gender is a thing that we as individuals and humans rule. So we're told we decide our biology, we decide our identity. God lovingly comes into that context and He wisely says, no, male and female, He made them. God decides and and rules over gender. Now, that's just one little example, it's a pretty big one for some of us, but it's a little example from thousands of other commands as you read on in the Bible, but His commands aren't a burden, He's not, it's His loving instruction to His good creation that we, His creatures, would know how to live best in His world. Fourth, God as Creator humbles us as creatures. God made us, we're, just, we're dust, we're from the dust, chapter 2, He's the eternal God. We owe Him everything. We're brought low by the reality of our creatureliness. So stand in awe of who God is. But off the back of that, this makes this next thing all the more amazing. Fifth, God in creation, in spite of what I've just said, He elevates humanity to a special dignity. It's beautiful. Day six stands out like a bit of a sore thumb in this chapter. It's different. God breaks the pattern twice. In the other days, He just speaks once. Day three, the place where He's going to put humanity, He speaks twice. Day six slows down even more detail and He speaks twice. He creates the animals and goes, that's good, but I've got a whole other speaking thing to do here and He speaks and He makes mankind who are uniquely said to be in the image of God. uniquely given the job of ruling this creation, stewards of this creation and we're given commands to obey that are relational that only a person, a human, could obey. All of that stands in stark contrast to the animals and the fish and and the plants. We are different, we're special, uniquely bearing the image of God. And what does that mean to bear the image of God? I think it's saying that God is the ruler over the top has given us the job of ruling under Him. We 
image God as we rule, as He would have us rule in His good creation. The value of human life, the dignity of humanity, is deeply grounded here in Genesis 1. Have you guys ever heard an atheist uh, argue for things like human rights or human purpose to life or, or, or morality? <laughs> it ends up sounding like a person expressing a kind of a preference for Coke over Fanta or something, it's, it's, except in a groupthink kind of way. They'll say, well, technically there's no objective reason to value human life, but it's better for our species if together we all treat each other good, that would be the best way for the tribe. Genesis 1... <laughs> Without this word from the Creator, who are we? What are we? Why does it matter who you are and what you do? Genesis, God comes and He speaks and He says, you matter. You're more than just another mammal, another species vying for supremacy. You matter, you have dignity, you have rights, you have value, you have purpose. You bear the image of God. We have a special dignity, a special responsibility and accountability to live before this God with purpose as we live in His good world. Human life, friends, is sacred. Human rights exist and they're grounded in something solid because there's a God who made you with a soul. Now, here's the sixth and final thing, we'll finish on this. This is the reason that God's made you. I wish we could spend more time here, we just can't, but here it is. You are made for eternal rest with this God. Now, it's funny, isn't it? After all the work of creating the first six days there, uh, day seven, it's as if it seems like God needs a rest or something. Have a look at verse one, chapter two. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, as if he's having a nap or something, he's tired. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. Now, I don't think what's going on here is God was tired and needed some PlayStation time and a nap. Uh, it's not the point. Instead, it's like God has set up this thing, he set up this space, this creation. You know, imagine you put together an office, you put in the furniture and the screens and the books and blah, 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 but then you move in and you actually start to use it for its purpose. You go to work there. Well, God set up this thing and what He does is He enters into now rest. He rests in the world that He's created. And as you read on in the Bible, what you'll see is that the call for, for humanity is that we need to enter this rest with God. Now, as a quick aside, that does mean that you as a human creature follow the pattern set up here in Genesis. You, you are one who works and rests. That's the pattern that God's built into our lives. But the New Testament will go on to make clear, this doesn't mean you need to keep a Sabbath, like the Old Testament commands. There's a whole other talk you could do on this. Uh, but the point is, there's this pattern built into our lives. Uh, but the New Testament, as you read on in Hebrews, the big thing you'll see is actually where to enter this rest by coming into relationship with God and entering rest in the new creation through Jesus. Jesus turns up and He says, come to me all you who are weary and I'll give you rest for your souls. Come and find relationship with the God who made you. Eternal rest, relationship with God in the new creation that will be restored to the beauty and the glory, be better than the creation in chapter 1. The new creation is where this is all headed. And so praise God for His good creation now as we head to eternal rest 
relationship with God forever in eternity. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the world around us. We thank you for our lives, the breath in our lungs, the dignity and purpose with which you've made us your creatures and the beauty of the creation around us and the world that you have placed us in. And Father, please help us to respond rightly to you, the great and mighty Creator. Father, thank you that our hope isn't ultimately in a creation that is broken and busted and failing and hurting, but thank you that we are headed for an eternity with you, our God, in relationship with you in the new creation. Amen.